0: Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question, while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor, and founder of the Calcedon Teacher Training Institute.
1: Having known Calcedon's president R.J. Rushdoony in person for fifteen years, and remaining a student of his since his passing in two thousand one. I began to emulate his habit of reading, reading everything I could get my hands on. I also got into the habit of having a book suggestion by someone I trust and then immediately going and acquiring the book, realizing that I might not see the book advertised or possibly forget about the recommendation. Recently, as I was going through Facebook, I saw on a friend's feed a photo of a book entitled The Economics of the Parables by Robert Sirico. Not only have I always been fascinated about the richness of the parables, but I was familiar with the author, having seen him interviewed in a number of documentaries, one especially Poverty Cure. Today I'm honored to have Robert Sirico with me to discuss his book. And his general stance that the moral basis for the free market can be found in the Bible. Robert Sirico is a Catholic priest and president of the Acton Institute. He lectures at colleges, universities, and business organizations throughout the U.S. and abroad. His writings on religious, political, economic, and social matters are published in a variety of journals. Father Sirico is often called upon by members of the broadcast media for statements regarding economic, civil rights, and issues of religious concern. And I discovered that he hails from New York City, as I do, and holds dual citizenship in both Italy and America. Welcome, Father Sirico.
0: So good to be with you, Andrea. Thank you for the invitation.
1: Oh, you're welcome. I kind of feel like it's my treat to be able to talk to somebody whose books and whose articles I've read. so thank you as well. So there are those inside and outside the church that have chosen to read and view the Bible as a socialistic or communistic treatise on the evil of wealth and business. Your book, "The Economics of the Parables," which incidentally, I read in less than a week, serves to disabuse people of this idea. So, before we get into your thesis, tell me why you decided to tackle this subject, and were you surprised in what your research and contemplation on it uncovered?
0: Well, um, that's a that's a good place to start because it gives the the kind of the the backdrop to the whole thing. I mean, just anecdotally, uh, I I came to an understanding of free market ideas many years ago. Uh, Almost fifty years ago now, from having been involved with the left, and you know a lot of the argument for socialism is really boils down to some form of a moral argument not not to say a religious argument because so many are are atheists, but it's a moral argument that the um the socialist way of organizing society is to be preferred because it aids the poor to a greater extent, and that capitalism or free markets is by its nature exploitative. And I I was of that ilk for a while until someone gave me a bunch of books. And as I uh, began to read them, these are free market ideas that were largely agnostic or atheist. I'm talking about Milton Friedman here, or Friedrich Hayek, or Ayn Rand, or Friedrich Bastiat, who who was a believer. They persuaded me that my assumptions were wrong. And that precipitated a a kind of retrieval of my faith that I had also abandoned during those years. This is in the 70s. It eventually sprouted into a, a vocation to the priesthood. And when I got to seminary, I found a lot of the leftist ideas still present there. And so I began studying more academically these kinds of ideas uh and came to the conclusion that in point of fact that the scriptures do not anathematize a free economy i i don't believe uh, and i know there are good christians who disagree with me on this i don't believe that there is a a thing called biblical economics that is that we can probe the uh the passages in deuteronomy and come up with a supply side or austrian Uh, economic view, Uh, but I do believe that the basic assumptions of the scriptures reaffirm the right to individual initiative, the right to private property, and the principles of minimal government. And um, I think that the socialist idea, you know, as expressed by Marx and Engels, is that there was some form of primitive socialism uh, operative in the early church. And uh, I think that's a, a category confusion. I think the confusion there is that the social nature of human life and the compassionate and generous nature of uh, the Christian vocation uh, is the same as socialism, and I think it's antithetical to that for a whole variety of reasons maybe we can get into.
1: Right. So I've heard it recently described that you have these two far sides of the pendulum. You have the simple gospel that will say personal salvation is the only thing that we should focus ourselves on and not be involved in other spheres like politics, economics, education. Right. And then there's the social gospel, which correctly identifies the need for compassion and charity. Right. But they place it in the wrong institution. Instead of making it a voluntary response to God's commands, they make it a statist response. And then whether or not you want to do it, they're going to force it on you because we're going to enforce charity as if you could enforce charity.
0: No, I think you're exactly right. That's a that's a very good way of putting it. If I could quote Winston Churchill, who who also got it, and he put it in a a classic bumper sticker statement. He said the, Christian, the the socialism of the early Christians said, all that I have is yours. And the socialism of the modern era says, all that you have is mine. Right. Uh, the, the difference is coercion. The difference is uh, whether it's inspired by a conversion of one's heart or mandated by bureaucrats in the state.
1: Right. So very often you'll see people when the subject of charity or helping the poor or the people who are needy. Well, I already pay my taxes. The government will take care of that. And it really separates us. So in one regard, the social gospel isn't wrong that we are responsible for those around us. But as I said, if you divorce Jesus Christ and what he said throughout his whole ministry and what the greater Bible talks about, it isn't that you do it because if you don't do it, we'll put you in jail. You do it as a response to our love for Christ.
0: And and because of this, the other thing that people seem to miss is that the the claim of the Christian church is far more radical than the socialist claim. In, in other words, it goes down to the root of who the person is and not merely their outward expressions. It's not just a, a, enough to... Uh, share with the poor, but to radically identify with, to embrace the poor, because in doing that we discover Jesus Christ uh, in the midst of the poor, where, where Jesus says, "To the extent you do it unto one of the least, the least of these, my brethren, you do it unto me." And so, I think um, socialism can only mandate action at best. Uh, what Christianity does is convert the heart, so that uh, the the reign of Christ takes place. Uh, in the believer, inside the believer, rather than just in the structures of society.
1: Now, I think I would disagree with you on one point that the Bible doesn't put forth an economic plan. I think it does. I think when you go back to the law where it says that every third and six years you were responsible to give a poor tithe and that you were to help those who could not help themselves. And if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. I think these are economic principles that, however they might be carried out, I think we can say that God is pretty clear on what he wants and how he wants it. He's not saying, don't help the poor, Not as, and he's, nor is he saying, because somebody is poor, that they're automatically should be helped.
0: Right. Um, but you said they are principles. And I agree. My, my point is that they are not policies. And it's not e- economics as such. Uh, economics as such doesn't come into existence until at the earliest, the mid 16th century. I mean, you have the ancients speaking about economia, household management. Um, so I would agree. Uh, w- would you say that the mandate in uh, in Leviticus or Deuteronomy to let the fields lay fallow every seventh year is a requirement of uh, agricultural industrial policy.
1: Yes, and I would also say that oh, gleaning okay. is an economic policy that you're able to help the poor, so that not that you give them handouts, but they can come on your field and they can glean, so they have to work for what they get. But the law says. You can't just take every bit of your harvest. You got to leave some for the poor. So to me, that falls yeah. into an economic policy.
0: But, but an actual policy that should be instituted by the government?
1: Well, it doesn't have to be inter- I see, again, this is like, should the government be the right. one to do right. it? For example, Goodwill Industries, they have right. where you come and you, you, you let other people come and glean, right? That's what you're basically doing at Goodwill because something right. that might have cost $50, they can buy for 10 or something of that nature. So I don't think that economics just has to be top-down. As a matter of fact, most of what the scriptural principles are, how you incorporate these into your life.
0: Yeah, no, I I agree with that. I I guess I see the the freer economy as accomplishing the aims of the Jubilee without the policy, the, the literal policy of the Jubilee. In other words, there is a gleaning that goes on as we see, um, in social arrangements in free economies where the poor are benefited just by the abundance of and, and the, um, efficiency of a market economy so that they live better, uh, than people who, you know, exist at the top layers of command economy. And that's a form of gleaning, even though it's not the literal right. image of an agricultural society.
1: Right. King Solomon did not have an iPhone.
0: Right. Right.
1: And yet, you can see homeless people where I live, and somehow or other, they have a cell phone. So
0: sure, it's become necessary.
1: <laughs> right. But in other words, because the price is such that it doesn't cost twenty five thousand dollars to have this little device. Um, some might exactly. say it's too much money, but the fact remains, it's within reach.
0: Right, right.
1: Okay, so let's get into the parables. I've, Like I said earlier, I've always loved the parables because Jesus communicated so much with so few words. As a writer myself, and yeah. you're a writer, don't you wish you could be as efficient uh, as Jesus?
0: <laughs> I, I sure wish I could. I mean, it's incredible. You There's one parable that's a, a sentence long. Uh, I think it's the parable of, uh, isn't the pearl of great price? Uh, it's just a sentence and there's just so much packed into that. I was just meditating on that this morning. As a matter of fact, uh, that the pearl of great price, we always think of the pearl, but what about the price of the pearl? The person who obtains the pearl has to have, has to relinquish so much in order to uh, attain that obtain that. Uh, and I I, I'm, and I have great admiration for Jesus' parables uh, for their efficiency, but also, uh, I may not be putting this precisely, there's a certain vagueness to them that leaves a lot of room for us to think about the challenges on an individual level. So I don't, in other words, <clears throat> I don't have to be a fisherman to, to learn something about, about the morals of of fishing or I don't have to be a home builder to learn something about the morals involved there. Right. Uh, or, and, and I think that is also part of the genius of, of the Lord's words.
1: Because <clears throat> like you said, you have to think about implications and that's what I really liked about your book, because as you're reading the parables, you pointed out and you do in the book that there's this one sentence parable But if you just go, okay, next, what he had to do, what this person had to do is he sell everything he had. So was there a garage sale? Did he, um, you know, advertise it on Craigslist? What did he do in order to get it? And then having it, you don't eat pearls. You don't, um, you know, you don't wear pearls in terms of keeping you warm. So there was some identification that this was valuable. And even though I think, and you say it in the book, there's a greater message that the kingdom of God and a relationship with God is so valuable that it's worth you getting rid of everything. Everything, But in order to do this in the context of the parable and his listeners, then and now, there's some steps you have to take in order to get it. And those are, as you point out, economic steps.
0: Yes. Isn't it interesting, too, that the Lord... (laughs) The one who everybody says, not everybody, but certain people say is a socialist, uses this luxury item that has no effective utility uh, as the image of the kingdom of God. Uh, you know, it's so bourgeois in a way. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, as you point out through all of them, and we'll get into specific parables because I think you've done a really good job of unpacking them, that instead of reading, a particular worldview, whether it's free market capitalism, socialism, communism, into the parables, you're basically suggesting that we need to discern a worldview out of the parables. So what is what are the value statements or value judgments Jesus is making? for example, let's take the rich young ruler, okay, okay. He, he didn't say, "Oh, you have money, you're bad' It says he loved him. He really he 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 had an affinity for him.
0: Yes. So, of course, hasn't a parable. Right. But but it's okay. It's there's a real economic lesson there. And I handle that at the end of the book. I, I have this long afterward. Yes. Where I kind of just jump through various passages in the New Testament. That was the most well, I don't know, it was the most enjoyable to write, but I really enjoyed writing that. That part of it, but the, this rich young ruler is—it's it, it, rich, <laughs> pardon the expression. <laughs> it, it, it's really pregnant with with great meaning and so deeply misunderstood. I mean, if you ask most people, even good Christians who've heard this passage over and over again, uh, what did Jesus? What's the first thing Jesus tells the rich young ruler to do? They're going to say uh, to give up all his money. And that's not what he tells him to do. The first thing he tells him to do is to engage in commerce. He tells him to sell all that he has and give it to the poor. And he doesn't even say give it all to the poor. It just says and give to the poor. I checked all of the 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 translations in each of the places where this encounter in the Synoptic Gospels where this happens. And it doesn't say give all, but let's say it is all. The important thing is that in order for him to fulfill the Lord's command uh, abundantly, if 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 there is a concern for the poor, then this man is going to have to trade and get a good return on his goods, on um, what he sells, what he's liquidating. Um, and you have this sense that that isn't even really Jesus' main concern. The main concern is the heart of this man. Is he going to now, pardon me for mixing up the parable with this the story. Is he going to buy the pearl of great price? Is mm-hmm. he going to be a disciple of the Lord? Uh, and he goes away sad, of course.
1: It reminds me of a lot mm-hmm. of the um, narratives about Elon Musk. If Elon Musk really cared, he could solve poverty. And why is he investing in these other things? As opposed to looking at the fact that Elon Musk, whether you like him or not, employs a lot of people and as a result of his inventions or his technology or his businesses, people are benefited. So we have this very strange view that, um, everybody should be poor, I guess.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, this is a, this is a very important point. And it really was one of the things that struck me when I was first having conversations, when I was still involved on the left, um, because I, I, this friend of mine said to me, well, what is it you'd like to see happen? I said, well, I want to see a worldwide redistribution of the wealth. And he said to me, he just played that out with me. He said, okay, let's say you do that. And this is what Elon Musk, this is his response to that criticism. It was a very concise and I think um unassailable response. Uh, let's say Elon Musk... <laughs> gave it all away liquidated everything he had and gave it all away how much would he give away how much is elon musk worth i don't i don't even know how much he's worth yeah i don't know not even a trillion not even a trillion how much would everybody in the world or even every poor person in the world get i once did an estimate for my previous book defending the free market Uh, and I imagined what the total wealth of the world was. And I redistributed it by the population so that everybody had the same amount of money. And it came to something like, uh, I don't remember, three or $7,000 per person. Now that's, you know, if you had six kids, that was pretty nice. But then the question is, what do you do next? Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and everybody has to go to work. Uh, and I'll bet you, after they go to work for five years, you're going to find some people more productive and less people, and some people less productive at the end of the game. So Elon Musk's genius and inventiveness, and whatever else you want to say about it, uh, is really benefiting more people by virtue of this leverage of of ingenuity than if he just redistributed the money uh, willy-nilly.
1: Right. And it wouldn't get to the root of poverty. It wouldn't say, now we're going to solve the causes of poverty. All it would do would maybe level everybody out for a little bit, kind of like the recent stimulus package then nobody wanted to go to work because they really liked the idea of getting money and not having to do anything for it.
0: Not to mention inflation. <laughs> <laughs> which is which is the 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 grandchild of these these policies, and I said it at the beginning, <laughs> the first day Trump began with the the uh, stimulus packages. I said, what's going to happen down the line is inflation, because if you want to stimulate the economy, the best thing to do is take all of the restraints off the economy, notably uh unnecessary regulations and tax burdens give everybody a tax holiday and then you'd see the economy stimulate and you wouldn't do damage to the organizational or organic part of the economy namely the habits of people going to work and earning an income and so we're in this dilemma now the whole world now is going through the after effects not of the COVID virus but of the uh, regulation that was intended uh, to help us through it.
1: Right. And this goes back to my point that in the New Testament, there's the economic principle. If you don't work, you shouldn't eat. Well, right. that's certainly not the current view. It oh, says right. I should eat because I'm here. Right. Right.
0: Right. And and if you uh, have the capacity to work uh, and you refuse to work, there's a moral uh, stigma that should be attached to that. Right. Because work has an intrinsic dignity. It's emulating the image of God uh, uh, that we are made to emulate.
1: Exactly. So let's go on to another parable. I realized with the rich young ruler, I threw you into the last chapter, but that's okay. Um, The house built on rock as opposed to the house built on sand. Yes. Um, There's a lot of stuff in there. First one for me is there's no government agency telling the guy he can't build on the sand.
0: You know, in none of these is there a government agency. Uh, I'm I'm hard-pressed to think uh, of a government agency in any of them. Certainly the Good Samaritan, who's often used as the image of the welfare state there's no government that's right. involved in it at all but you're, you're right uh, what's required here is planning and and a knowledge of what you're doing uh, and if you if you don't do it well uh, there are some consequences that are associated with that uh, so it's it's the knowledge and the and the economic planning so to speak And if you don't know what you're doing, you have to bear the consequences of that. Right. So
1: I happen to know people who are contractors and builders. Mm -hmm. And if they do a shoddy job or one that won't last, at best, they don't get um, rehired. They don't have good Yelp reviews, right? Right.
0: But reputation, at worst, yeah, reputation is very important to a business. This is why a lot of businesses say Yelp.
1: <laughs> right, yeah. right. But at the same token, if as a result of something that was done that was negligent or irresponsible, the Bible has provisions that say if you've wronged somebody, that then, you know, the commandments of God come into play. So that part really, you know, spoke to me that there was no regulation in it. But again, there are building and economic principles, which are not the main reason that Jesus gives it, but you can't right. divorce his examples because he could have given other examples.
0: Right. That he uses things in human experience, namely scarcity, uh, the necessity of planning, the necessity of knowing what it is you're doing and risking, taking the risk to do it. All of these things Jesus uses as an indication of an even higher set of priorities. And I, I suppose that's what makes the, um, the parables understandable across uh, two millennia now.
1: Right. So another one that has always stood out to me is the parable of the workers in the vineyard. You know? <laughs>
0: So I that's picture gets like, that's the most, <laughs>
1: like, like at, you, know, you picture a Home Depot near where I live. And every morning there's a group of men who want to get hired on for certain things. And, you know, if you're lucky, you get hired on early. Um, I'm not usually there in the afternoon to see if there's still people congregating, but that's very much like this parable. And this parable certainly does not promote a minimum wage, does it?
0: Not at all. It's quite antithetical to it. And the the people who are um, unhappy at the end of this are those who presume. You know, it's interesting. So you have, what, four instances of hiring these different people. At, at the beginning, there's an amount. It's the usual daily wage. And then at the end, it gets vague. Uh, I'll pay you whatever is just. And then the reversal of fortunes at the end, because he has those who worked the least getting paid first, and then they go to those who worked the whole day getting paid the same amount. Everybody came to the deal agreeing to the deal. Right. And probably, as you can imagine, those guys that you see at Home Depot are glad when somebody picks them up for work, you know, I'm going to go home tonight with some money in my pocket. Um, and it's agreed upon. So nothing objectively changes uh, in the contract. It's the subjective interpretation on the part of the workers uh, at the end of the day. And uh, even good people look at this and say, oh, well, that was unfair. Well, the question is, was it unjust? Exactly. Uh, and, and what is it that bugs you about this parable? It's generosity that's bugging you about it. Mm-hmm. Now think about that. You are disturbed by the generosity of the man who owns the vineyard. And I, I often when I read this, uh, it's a similar situation to the, the one we call the good thief. You know, at the end of his life, steals heaven. Uh, you know, he's hanging there on the cross and just says, Lord, remember me. And Jesus said, you'll be with me in paradise. How often Christians who have gone to church on a regular basis, given and made great sacrifices, feel uh, very superior and judgmental of people who just come into the church and are, are kind of, you know, late comers to the whole thing. And, and Christians can feel very superior to them. But this is a warning against that. Uh, don't be envious. Uh, are you envious? <laughs> are you jealous because I am generous? That's what the man says, at the, the, the owner of the vineyard says at the end of this parable. Right. Uh, and it's, it's really something for us to think about. He also says, don't I have the right to do with my property what I want? <laughs> right, uh, which Which tells you another thing about, you know, the whole economic presupposition here.
1: Right. So when we talk about there was no government involvement. So currently with minimum wage and all sorts of laws and social security and disability taxes, property owners, business owners really are sharing their ownership with a bureaucracy. Yeah. And when push comes to shove, the bureaucracy doesn't even know the workers, yet the owner or business manager does. So you even remove the human contact from it and you foster a violation of the 10th commandment not to covet.
0: Right. Now think about this. Uh, this gospel and and the the lessons that Jesus is teaching here are rendered mute in the face of the kind of political situation you just described. In other words, it, it, what that political situation of all of the regulations, all of the pre- protections all the guarantees mean that what is being encouraged here is a sense of entitlement yes and it impedes generosity it goes exactly against the lesson of this gospel
1: right and you mentioned something else that I think is worth noting, although not necessarily part of this discussion on the economics of this particular parable. But when you talked about the thief stealing heaven, he didn't really steal heaven. He was given heaven no. as all right. No. But, but if you think about it, who are some of the most intolerant people? There are people who will look back on a person's life prior to conversion and hold their sins or their mistakes or whatever. Look, look what you did once. Because in their mind, there's no such thing as redemption. There's no such thing as generosity that says, yep, you broke my laws, but I forgive you.
0: The gratuitousness of God, yeah. I heard a preacher once say, uh, he said this morning, he said, it is very dangerous to go deep sea diving in the sea of God's forgetfulness looking for other people's sins yeah, that's <laughs> a good one. That, that God has forgiven. It's hard enough for us. You know, we, we who have sinned to accept that generosity on the part of God to not have other people uh, reminding us of the mistakes that we made.
1: Right. Because the scripture gives us, Matthew was mm-hmm. a tax collector. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Paul, the apostle Without oh. rounding up Christians. So if yep. we're going to say, look what someone did in their past and omit the fact that they were saved by grace, then we've lost the gospel.
0: Right, right. The whole purpose of Christ's coming is lost. He comes to seek and save that which is lost. And if everybody's going to be so shiny and good from the beginning, then why does he have to come?
1: Right, right, exactly. Okay, so there's. Mm-hmm. Let's, I'm going to have you... Talk about both of these parables together, even though they're not exactly related. The prodigal son that yes. we, first of all, Jesus never named his parables. He told that, stories well, and we call them these things. And then yeah. the story of the Samaritan, we call him the good Samaritan, but yes. all we really know about him is he was a Samaritan and right. Jesus basically assigns him the adjective good.
0: Right. So talk about
1: the economic principles you derived from both those parables.
0: Well, of course, the the Good Samaritan, uh, and now we have Good Samaritan laws. By the way, just parenthetically, it's interesting to see how many times words uh, or concepts in these Gospels become natural idiomatic expressions that we use. The Good Samaritan laws that we have, for instance, the word talents by the way, is an economic unit in the ancient world and that we use uh, uh, as a gift that someone's given us. So, or the prodigal uh, is another example of that. But with the Good Samaritan, it, it appears, it doesn't say explicitly, but it appears from what we can see that this man is a, a businessman. He's on the road uh, to Jericho, going from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he's been on this road before he's about something. He's, he's going to do something and he comes upon this, this man who has been passed over by the way, by the theologically righteous. And we could speculate on, on what made them do that. But uh, certainly this road was known to be a dangerous road. It was, it's somewhat isolated. uh, And you can imagine that they didn't want to stop because, They might get robbed as well. What I like about this passage is that it is so intimate. Right from the beginning, if you read this slowly, you see that this man sees the need, overcomes whatever hesitation he might have had in coming over, whether it's a cleanliness thing or a risk to his own self. And it says that he takes out uh, these medicinal supplies he happens to have, the oil and the wine, and begins cleaning the man's wounds and then hoists him up so he's physically doing this there's nobody else there with him he's physically hoisting the man up onto his own beast all of this is personal all of this is this man's investment the samaritan's investment in this parcel of broken humanity and then takes him back to the inn where he obviously is known and tends to his needs there and then says, look, I, I, in effect, I'm putting it in modern language. He says to the innkeeper who he evidently knows and says, look, um, here's some money. Take care of him. Help him to recover. And if you pay, if you use more, uh, than I've left you, I'll pay you on my way back. All of this is a personal engagement with this man. It is to my mind, the antithesis of a bureaucracy it's the antithesis of a welfare state this is compassionate work here and compassion is uh, really suffering with another person which is exactly what the samaritan does with this man so i i i I, you know i mean everybody loves this this uh parable because it it speaks to us of compassion
1: but what i like about how you Mm -hmm. dug into it is you had to speculate or think about? Let Let's talk about this Samaritan. He has resources. He has a good reputation. Uh-huh. He's a businessman. Right. He's an entrepreneur. We yeah. don't know what he is, right. but without right. all that, would he have the resources to help?
0: Right, right. Uh, you sound like Margaret Thatcher. She She had a great quip once in the in the British Parliament. She said. Uh, I, I wish I could remember the exact quote, but she says, uh, "We wouldn't remember the Good Samaritan if he didn't have money," <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's a real good lesson in uh, again the the conversion of the heart, the the tender heart who identifies with the poor.
1: Right, and again, who was looking? You know, obviously the priest and the scribe. I think that's who came beforehand. Right. Um, they didn't think anyone was looking well in the parable Jesus is noting just by telling a story that somebody knew they walked by right. somebody knew that they didn't stop and as you pointed out they might have had very good reasons in their mind but of course Jesus yeah. was teaching a greater lesson than just you know stay out of trouble sort of thing but um, in terms of that it gives us a sense of it's it's not that the samaritan was doing this so he'd get written up in the paper or that right. he could get elected he was a samaritan for goodness sake so he was always he was already traveling through a place where he wasn't thought highly of
0: right and he, he's a marginal character you know in, in the society in which he lives he's a marginal character right so it, it just it's a layer upon layer upon layer of moral significance that, that Jesus gives us here
1: Right. Okay, let's jump to the prodigal
0: son. Prodigal son, I need to say that, you know, when I submitted the manuscript to the book, the editor who was intrigued by the whole thing said, wait a minute, you have to put the prodigal son in here. And and I have to say, it didn't occur to me uh, when I compiled this. And now there are two or three other ones that as, as I'm thinking about it, uh, that I could have included, maybe in a revised version of this, I would. But the prodigal son, and I like that you started off by indicating that Jesus, of course, doesn't give the titles to these parables. Right. Uh, and this is a good example because a better name for the prodigal son, I think it's a more focused uh, name, would be the the loving father. Right. Because the center of this story is the father's action, the consistency of the father's actions toward his two sons who are admittedly in different circumstances, but basically alienated from him. They are outside, in one way or another, of his embrace. Uh, And the one takes the money and goes, uh, and then comes back. And the joy of the father in seeing the son, who is on his way back, rushing to him and restoring him to his dignity, tells us something about his, his loving attitude toward the son. Now, the son has a very similar attitude toward the father to that of his brother, because he just sees his father as the source of his uh, inheritance. And he admittedly squanders it. We see at the end of this, and this is another one of these things where some speculation comes into play. And uh, we don't know what really happens at the end of this what resolution could could happen at the end of this because the older son is standing outside the banquet where uh that the father has provided for the younger son and doesn't want to go in. He's pouting in effect. You you never give me anything to celebrate with my uh friends, and here you are killing the fatted calf. <laughs> one one uh The sermon I heard one time, or one story I heard one time was a Sunday school teacher asked her class, at the end of this story, who was the only unhappy character? And a little girl stood up and said, the fatted calf. (laughs) (laughs) He gets slaughtered. But, of course, it's the the older son. uh, And he's viewing his father again in a very similar way to how his younger brother did. Uh, From the beginning, instrumentally, the source of my, you know, of my inheritance, of what I can get out of this. And the father is constant. He wants to bring these sons back to his love. And what we don't know at the end of this is whether that older son will actually come in and just let it all dissolve. uh, All of his bitterness, bitterness, his resentment, dissolve and embrace his brother in the same way that his father did. So it's an interesting story. So it's an inheritance dispute. It's about money. It's about our our place in the pecking order.
1: Right. Well, I've heard people say, Hmm. um, and it's funny because the account doesn't say this, that the older son's afraid now that his inheritance Hmm. is going to be cut in half because now the father's going to take from him and give to his younger brother. It never says that.
0: Well not only doesn 't it say that, but everything we know about Jewish law guaranteed that the older son would get the lion 's share of the inheritance because he had the responsibility of running the estate, and he had the responsibility for the younger siblings and
1: as taking well care of his parents
0: and and the parents, sure, in their old age, so all of that was why it was given to the older son uh, so no that would that 's sheer speculation that 's kind of like the people who say that um, in in that instance of the rich man, uh, the rich young ruler, they say that the uh, eye of the needle was a door in um, a passage into Jerusalem, uh, through the wall in Jerusalem, where camels couldn't fit. So you had to unload the camel to get the camel in and then bring the stuff in that's all very nice and good and it makes for nice homiletical material except that that didn't exist that the, the eye of the needle that's in the temple uh, that is I'm sorry in the wall of the of Jerusalem didn't exist until I think it was the 17th century or the 18th century so uh people kind of imply things and it's very easy to do that in these passages because they beg you to fill in the blanks you know yeah. and you just have to be very careful you're not doing it ideologically
1: but it shows to the fact whether or not it's done correctly that there are um applicability in every age sure right exactly. i think another aspect of the this account mm. of the generous father which i actually like better but it probably you know isn't a sensational enough headline you know man bites dog is a better right. than right. dog bites man but right. the fact that the older son is just as guilty as those nine o'clock workers in the vineyard. This is covetousness and envy. And so Jesus's parables are consistent with his law are consistent with you're not going to find a contradiction. The Bible says thou shalt not steal. You're not allowed to steal from your employer, just like you're not allowed to steal from your employees.
0: Right? Exactly. This, by the way, this, this balance is really the whole answer to uh, people who want to eisegete, to read into the texts their own uh, ideologies, uh, that that all wealth is evil uh, or that all wealth is good. Uh, Jesus is saying, no, there's something much more profound, much more rudimentary in our dealing with material things. Uh, and that is our focus on the kingdom of God. So it's this sense of balance uh, in in how we handle the things of this world. Uh, because if we don't, then it becomes idolatry.
1: Right. Okay. Another parable was the steward who was forgiven and then doesn't go ahead and forgive someone who owes that, him. And the amounts of money are radically different.
0: Uh, yes, incredibly. and 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 we kind of lose that sometimes in the translation, but it's an enormous amount of money. Even the one who owes less (laughs) still owed a lot, but the one who owed a lot really owed a lot. It was not possible to pay it back. And it's very hard to conceive of a lack of, of the lack of gratitude on his part and the especially the way jesus sets it up it's almost as though he goes from being forgiven the debt to bumping into this guy and then throttling him and demanding uh, that he pay back this measly amount um it's ingratitude on stilts uh, <laughs> if if you really dwell in this 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 world that Jesus creates here um of course we can talk about debt and the forgiveness of debt and bankruptcy all of that that I kind of uh, walk around but it really is again pointing to the grace of God uh, that what we are forgiven is so immeasurable uh, that we should then that should correct our attitude toward other people. When I'm counseling people who who have sinned and they're seeking God's forgiveness, uh, one of the things I ask them to do is to dwell on the experience of that forgiveness and see how they're going to apply it to people who have offended them less than they have offended God. Exactly. It's, it's very um, rehabilitating, if you will.
1: I would even go so far as to say, it's a mark of being forgiven that you forgive. Not only you forgive, but you can't think of an instance where you couldn't forgive. Yeah. Right. Now that doesn't mean that civil penalties go away. No, it no, It just no. means that you recognize in a very true sense there, but for the grace of God, you would be.
0: Yes. It's, it's those kinds of moments that we've seen play out, um, you know, in the courtrooms. I'm thinking of the, was it the Amish some years ago? You remember when there was that slaughter of a number of Amish children? Yes. And what happened was the Amish community came to the people who did that and forgave them. The, the, The Amish weren't saying by that that you shouldn't be held accountable for what you did. I don't remember the details of the litigation and all of that. Uh, or people who stand up in a courtroom. Uh, that racist attack that took place um, uh, not very long ago in what was it, North Carolina, uh, where the the people in the courtroom, uh, and it took place in a church, in a Bible study, mm-hmm. and the the relatives of those people who had been murdered stood and forgave, in the name of Christ. It didn't say you shouldn't go to jail. No, and and this is what surmounts. It, it it points to something much higher than the civil law, uh, and uh, and here you have it uh, in in this kind of a parable.
1: And again, this may seem like a bunny trail, but I think that's what the Sermon on the Mount is pointing to. Jesus is not nullifying civil law; 4%. he's just saying, if you stay within those bounds, don't think you've done enough
0: right you couldn't uh, you couldn't in, instantiate in law the the moral ethic of the sermon on the mount you couldn't do it right uh, even if you had a complete totalitarian government and and that goes back to what we were saying earlier is that christ captivates the heart and that goes far more radically than any kind of uh, uh civil a legal system could ever go.
1: Right. And there are people who think we just need more laws. And I like to point out, we have the best law there is in the law of God, but right. that wasn't enough to save people. Cause right. if it was the incarnation was a big waste of time.
0: And, and, and you know, the interesting thing is there is a call for greater and greater laws precisely as the moral tie wanes. Uh, when, when a sense of morality is being eviscerated from society, then far smaller things uh, become radically imposed. You know, these bans on smoking and things like that that are, are so morally superior, uh, uh, whereas we're, we're slaughtering innocents uh, yeah. by the thousands pray God now that that's going to slow down. But the the point is that we become obsessed with small things when the moral law is relaxed, we're trying to substitute it. We're still looking for boundaries, but we're looking in the wrong place.
1: Exactly. All right. So there's two more parables. I mean, there's lots more parables, but there's two more. And since you, you brought up the talents already, I won't go into that because most people are familiar with to whom much is given and they'll be rewarded with more. Right. So that one, I think, and, and they should read the book. I, I never want to interview an author and say, "Now you don't need to read the book." You need uh, to read. Please,
0: no, no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you need to read the book.
0: The dogs have to eat. <laughs> <laughs>
1: exactly. So, um, so I don't know if you're familiar with Jerry Boyer, who wrote "The Maker Versus the Takers."
0: But he, yes, I've heard of it. I haven't read the book.
1: You should. You should read his book. See, yes. Jerry, you, if you're listening, I'm telling him to read your book. But he points okay. out that the parable of the rich man and Lazarus might have been very close to home in terms of the description of the rich man, that maybe it would point to a high priest who had so many brothers. Regardless if that's the case, there are economic mm-hmm. principles even in that parable. Talk about that
0: a little bit. Well, uh, uh, let me let me say first of all that that this is not about. It's so easy to take this passage and say, "See, the rich man is in hell, and the poor man's in heaven." But one of the um, commentators, ancient commentators, I think, is Ambrose, says that uh, no, the, the rich man didn't go to hell because he was rich. He went to hell because he was proud, mm-hmm. and Lazarus doesn't go to heaven because he's poor he goes because he's humble Uh, also very interesting and i didn't notice that until i began doing the research is that it's usually the rich who are known you know elon musk and stuff like that and the poor who are unknown but in this passage the rich man is not given a name it's lazarus the poor man who's given the name Mm -hmm. so it's intriguing there but then notice that it's the rich man doesn't do anything to lazarus he simply doesn't see him he ignores him uh and uh, so that is a, a depth that we sometimes miss because we're assuming that he's stepping on his neck that he's got his foot on his head uh under the table um he's behind closed walls you know he's sitting at at the uh The wall, the, the, the door to his home. It's also intriguing to see attitudinally that the rich man, even in hell, is ordering Lazarus through Abraham, what to do? Tell, tell him to go and take a, you know, tell my brothers about this or put a drop of water on my tongue. You know, he's still bossing, uh, him around. So it, it really gets to the, the character of the rich man more than than his wealth, uh, and I think that's what people miss. We we just take the most obvious thing and uh, spin um, a moral out of that. When there's so much more going on in this uh, this story than than what immediately uh, meets the eye.
1: One of my daughters once, I think she was all of eight years old, said to me as if she had this revelation that she didn't think I knew, she looked at me and she said, mom, don't you think it would be better if we were rich? And I was like, wow, what a concept. Why didn't we think of that? It would be better if we were rich. Let's do that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Thanks for the insight. You know, well, when all is said and done, we assume that the rich have no problems. We assume that it's better to be rich than to be poor. Yeah. and this parable gives us an eternal perspective on economics in the sense of it's not about how much money you have under the mattress or in your bank account or in stocks or whatever it has to do with your relationship that's where the richness comes in
0: yeah and um and it's of course we we know just by the suicide rates and the medication rates of the rich that there that they're no um, you know, there's no guarantee. But I think the the lesson here, too, is humility. Uh, and what Paul says, uh, I found myself in abundance and I found myself in want, but in all things I have determined to be content. What is the contentedness of a human life? Knowing that you are um, doing what you ought to be doing. It's really living the humble life, which is a life that loves the truth above everything else. That's what humility is. It's not obsequiousness. And, uh, we see this in, in the character of Lazarus and pray God, you know, in, in our own lives. There's also this balance, I think, you know, overall in the book that I'm trying to achieve. Uh, Between the two tendencies, two religious approaches uh, at the extremes, uh, uh, Christian approaches uh, toward economics, is the the left-wing movement called liberation theology, and there are versions of that. That's the Catholic uh, aberration of it, which basically says that the poor are canonized and the, the rich are demonized. And then the prosperity gospel mm-hmm. that says that the rich are canonized, that they are the exemplars of God's blessing. And if you're poor, you have somehow failed uh, in your religious calling. Uh, I think those two extremes are false. And these parables as a whole give the lie to them.
1: Right. And when, when you think about the actual derivation of the word economics, meaning management of the household, yes, you know, whether it's your own personal household, the household of God, or even the household of sense of nations, God's law has to be over all of those jurisdictions to be in harmony with his creation. Yes. Last parable. This is the tough one that people don't know what to think about that unjust servant who seems to be praised for being a rat. Um, So is the economic principle there? Be as shrewd as you can before you get fired. (laughs) I don't think so. I I know that's not what you say.
0: No, much, much less uh, uh, scheming and, and cheating uh, because that's what he does. He inflates, uh, uh, you know, he's stealing from, from the master in effect. No, I think, what the lesson is, and, and Jesus in effect says it, um that we should respect technique no matter where it's found, that we shouldn't just think that piety is sufficient, that uh, we have an obligation to think things through and authentically be good servants, good stewards of the things that are entrusted to us. And it's... um uh, you know, the, the translation just slips me right now when, uh, that, that Jesus uses the, what is that ambiguous line? He says, um, the children of, of darkness are often more, um,
1: shrewd.
0: Does he say shrewd? Shrewd is the word that comes up, but I don't think in the, I use the King James Bible in this one, uh, because I, I like the language of it. Uh, but I think that's what confuses a lot of people. Uh, he's he's telling, or prudent, that that it's an admonition to prudence. It's an admonition to respect uh, the intricacies of one's obligations, and not just settle for a superficial piety uh, in it, because that's the way we become good servants, really holistically good servants. Right.
1: So I think a lot of people are confused on that parable. In as much as it looks as though, um, first of all, why doesn't he fire him immediately? Um, Why does he say, you know, you're going to be fired at the end of the week? Um, That seems to be unwise on the part of the master. But then the guy is thinking like, well, I, you know, I don't want to beg. I I, got to make a living, you know, so I've (laughs) got to find um, somebody who's going to hire me
0: yeah I mean again, you know, we speculate it's plausible that um when you have a, a worker who knows the accounts, who knows where everything is buried, you want to give him some time to give you an accounting of it because you may not uh, be aware of everything. so give me an accounting of what what you've done, and then this guy takes that as an opportunity to really rip off the master even more than he's than he's been doing. Uh, so that, that might be it. But he really is quite quite lazy. He, he can't consider himself uh, actually going to work. So what he does, what he ends up doing is, is doubly betraying the master.
1: So I always wondered about those guys who um, they're getting this really good deal from the steward. Now, maybe they know he's about to be fired. Maybe they don't know. But uh, they seem to go, okay, we'll take it. You know, this sounds too good to be true. Instead of saying, so it probably isn't, um, they go ahead and they accept the deal that, in a sense, steals from the master.
0: Yes, I I found this now. Uh, The 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 word is rendered wise, as in wise as serpents, as harmless as doves. But um, the the serpent in in the Bible is is an image of of betrayal. Uh, it's a negative image, uh, and so uh, in this gospel, uh, in the two gospels, the that's uh, where Jesus sa- says this. He's not using it as an endorsement of evil. It's kind of a whole other layer. It's it's another one of these examples in the parables of the the necessity to really think this through, <clears throat> to think through the many layers that are going on here and not just read it quickly and superficially. Right.
1: So as I said, I I highly recommend that people get the book. But before we go, because we're getting near the end, uh, I'd like to talk about your greater work with the Acton Institute and um, what are some of the things other than writing books that you think are important for the people of God to know about?
0: Well, this basic um, economic literacy, or, you know, as we were just talking about the prudence and the necessity of technique, that if we're going to do something serious for God, we have to understand how, how things work. You know, you, you can't just put any kind of thing out there just because you, you're inspired to do it. So many um, believers do that. Um, it 's required that we really understand things seriously if we 're going to take our vocation seriously. The Acton Institute we have uh, films, we have conferences, and they 're wide ranging they 're open to people of goodwill you know regardless of where their starting place is uh, we 're not there to um, uh, to be the whole of the Christian vision. We're there to just dig into some of these questions because I, my belief is that the more you study the truth, in this case, the truth of economics, the more you you have a greater chance of bumping into the greater truth of the whole universe. So Acton has existed now for 32 years, uh, holding seminars and conferences, producing literature at various Uh, academic levels um, uh, around the world to combat the kind of um, socialist uh, power-based thinking that um, emanates and influences a lot of religious thinking.
1: Right. I first ran into you um, in that documentary called Poverty Cure. Yes. And I I liked it so much that um, I was part of a book club and I said, we should watch this. Okay, well, we're, we can still read the book, but we need to watch the videos. And there were some really important aha moments, I would call them, mm-hmm. where you, I think you're, it wasn't, I mean, you were featured, but I don't know, did the Acted Institute actually produce that? Oh, yes. Okay. yes
0: we did. Yeah. okay,
1: so that's why it was so good. All right. So um <laughs> pointed out that when Westerners, who don't understand a lot of biblical principles, although you don't say that specifically in the film, but you allude to it, want to solve poverty by throwing money at things. There was a whole segment where you showed how entrepreneurial people in poor areas are actually shut down when, for example, a church decides we're going to help this group of people in this little village and we're going to send them eggs. In the process... They run the guy who is making a living producing eggs, and he's run out of business. And the Christians business. in the West feel so good about themselves.
0: Yes, or the woman in Kenya who is a um, a textile designer who talks about the impact of all of these clothes that come from the West. Well-intended. And it puts her out of business and all of the people that she employs out of business, or it certainly has to make her much more <laughs> You know more onerous um, there uh, let me tell you a little secret uh, there are two versions. I think the one you're describing is called Poverty Cure yes. which is a curriculum. it has I think seven segments to it yes there's a secular version that we produced called Poverty Inc and that makes no explicit religious uh, connections because it was designed, to be um seen by secular audiences Uh, and it was very effective in doing that we even got michael moore the great socialist uh, to invite us to show it at his uh, film festival and he he endorsed it (laughs) wow (laughs) and one one person on the website under his endorsement said i don't think you've picked up what they're really about here (laughs) so uh but we tried to just in a common Grace sort of language speak about the impact of bad economic policies on the poor.
1: I, I saw that at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, that's when I was watching it and, um, realizing that stimulus checks are very similar to just shoving money at people as, and these people who were the entrepreneurs in these various towns and cultures resent it. You're saying you're killing us here and, yeah. and, How does anybody think it's biblical? I think it makes people feel less guilty that they have stuff as opposed to saying, well, if God's given me stuff, then I'm supposed to share what I have. So if I just share the stuff that I can't use anymore and send it all over, um, I somehow have fulfilled my task under God.
0: Yeah, it's the bonos dropping in, you know, helicoptering in after a rock concert and uh, decrying capitalism uh, uh as though capitalism isn't going to be the very thing that these people are going to need in order to rise out of their poverty the same capitalism that bono is practicing
1: right who who, who flew him in
0: <laughs> right right all
1: right so father how can people if they want to know more about you if they want to dialogue with you and they think well i could learn yeah. something from this man um how do they reach you
0: The Acton Institute, uh, acton.org, you're going to find um, an incredible amount of information and resources there, especially if you use the uh, search engine. But just look through it and you'll see all kinds of things that are useful for your own ministries, in your own churches uh homily uh, sermon preparation i think the book on the parables uh please feel free to steal that and and go to town with it you know uh and and for for those of you who have sat under the tutelage of of pastors who are are sadly mistaken about economics i think that's a nice uh, christmas gift to give them <laughs> to help go. them improve so actin.org
1: Right. A lot of times people will say, well, what's in it for him? Well, I think Acton Institute, like the Calcedon Foundation that actually sponsors this podcast, we're in it for the kingdom of God. Right. Um, we realize that we're just a small part of God's story, visiting this place for as many years as he gives us. But the kingdom exists before us and will exist after us. And we're just privileged to do our part.
0: Yes, Yes. Very
1: good. Well thank you. Father, I appreciate you spending time with me and listeners as always. If you have any questions, feel free to reach me at out of the question podcast at outofthequestionpodcast@gmail.com and I'll talk to you next time.
0: Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.